0: A bougie 22.
1: I actually spelled it with a J today. That's how tired I was.
0: A bougie, yeah. Well, you do spell border uh, like someone who lives with you when describing tourism. And
1: it's. because I would like a tourist to live with me. Cost of living crisis.
0: Bunk
2: rooms, right? David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. Do police still arrest criminals in New Zealand? we tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Mr Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Iron Juke Podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I am Maddie Burgess Smith, and with me is Senior Consultant Byron Terrace.
0: Hello, Maddie. It's great to be back on yet another episode of the Iron Juke Podcast. Isn't it just wonderful to be here in the capital city on this budget week? That's when we're recording the podcast on Budget Week,
1: by the way. Exclusively the budget. That's all we're talking about today. But there's
0: also just a little little sprinkling in there of the emissions reduction plan, which was a similar-sized important document. And then later on, we are joined by a very special guest from the other side of the Tasman, the president of Carnival Australia, the region's largest cruise operator, Marguerite Fitzgerald. So, Maddie, let's talk about the Bougie.
1: Give us a bit of a flavour. Look... My areas of interest are always going to be in and around environmental policy, so the peak for me this week actually wasn't the budget, it was the emissions reduction plan that was announced on Monday.
0: In total, there will be six emissions budgets and emissions reductions plans to take us out to 2050. Each budget will act as a stepping stone to lower emissions and each plan will include the necessary policies and strategies to meet that budget.
1: What I thought was awesome about that, and it's received a lot of criticism for the fact that it's all but excluded ag, and those of us in the Beltway know that there's plenty of work going on in the background there. I think that First Emissions Reduction Plan was an exciting setup for the future, in particular when we start to look at methane mitigation technologies that are...
0: Stopping cows from fighting.
1: Stopping cows from fighting. Nice. What it was is the government saying, hey to the industry, we recognise that you're facing some colossal challenges with massive price tags on them to be low emissions, high productivity and high wage. So what the government's done is they've set up almost half a billion dollars worth of funding to support the commercialisation of a lot of those technologies. So a number that you know people would have been reading about, you've got the red seaweed that stops cows farting, you've got a vaccine that stops cows farting, you've got grasses that stop cows burping. The price tag on research science and innovation in this country is colossal. So seeing the government step up to the plate and say we are going to partner with industries to bring to life the types of technologies that we need, our rural sector's always going to underpin us, and the government recognised that and said, yeah, look, we'll we'll write a cheque to help you out.
0: Agricultural emissions are a bit of a thorny issue in New Zealand, right? They always have been, whether they're included in the emissions trading scheme, which we've had a podcast on that with... uh Eric Crampton uh, and his kind of view on that is very interesting.
1: And look, just to run through a couple of other big ticket items in the ERP, obviously you had the scrappage scheme, money towards buying new EVs, you had car leasing schemes, you had big decarbonisation funds, which, you know, the Nats have labelled as corporate welfare but as I said at the beginning, it's gone a long way to set up New Zealand's industries and business communities for a low emissions future.
0: So the emissions reduction plan was $4.9 billion worth of investment into the economy, something similar like that. Mm-hmm. And the budget, of course, is the granddaddy of the parliamentary year, where the government gets to set its economic agenda. So my pit of the week is actually the cornerstone of this budget. We will also provide short-term targeted support to low- and middle-income New Zealanders through a $350 cost-of-living payment across three monthly instalments from August 1. This might come as a shock to some people, and we've been talking about inflation, and we've been talking about cost of living, and that's the number one issue that is facing New Zealanders at the moment, and the one cornerstone policy, the $830 million for the squeezed middle to get $350 over three months, that's great, but it's not. But it is a targeted way that we can support people through this challenging period. It's really poorly targeted. If you're eligible for the winter energy payment, which is a supplement of either the benefit or the pension, you cannot get that money. If you earn over $70,000 a year, you cannot get that money. While not excessively exacerbating inflation. In the time of relatively high inflation for New Zealand, you are going to pump $800 $800 million dollars mm. into the economy over a very short specific period of time. Oh, inflation's pretty bad, eh? Best not overcook the economy. Well, here's some money to overcook the economy.
1: Look, Myron, I think this government's got a pretty warped perception of who the middle are. So the truth is you're not going to get this money, like you said, if you're over 65, if you're under 18, or if you're making seventy over $70,000 a year. Now, that's or if you're just, the benefit. And look, that 70K, that's just above median income.
0: Yeah, there was a bit of political shit fighting going over that. What yeah. the hell is median wage in New Zealand? How do you define that? Is it household? Is it this? Is it that? Is it 58? Is it 66?
1: Can I also just say, you know, it was the main centrepiece and it wasn't even some of their largest spending.
0: Yeah, exactly. It wasn't
1: even the big ticket item.
0: So on one hand, the main centrepiece, completely illogical in the time of high inflation, that even Treasury themselves said, please don't do this. We've got mm-hmm. inflation and now you're just going to kick it up higher. My peak of the week... However. However, just a bit of a pivot there, is some other cost of living measures which I thought were sensible from the government. For the next two months, public transport remains half price and fuel excise duty gets extended as well. Those are really impactful measures. They make a difference to the costs that people are paying every day. And that is the whole purpose of anti-inflationary measures is to reduce costs, not Mm. stoke demand, not stoke people's wallets because that's the problem of inflation. In a nutshell, too much money chasing too few goods those two policies, they have do very good things for the kind of lower-to-middle-income earners in New Zealand, uh, public transport users. and Who also
1: proportionately pay more of their income towards yes. fuel and transport.
0: That's right. There's another package in here that was, I thought was another peak, mm-hmm. another billion dollars for emergency and transitional housing. The government realises that these motels are going to have to say, well, do we want to have social housing tenants or do we want to go back to being tourist providers? And that's a big problem.
1: No, I completely disagree with you. That's not what those businesses were stood up to do. It's not purpose-built accommodation for these people. We want to encourage the market to flourish. We want there to be places for tourists to come back to. And if you tell me I'm going to offer you a consistent $250 a night for that room and I'm going to put social housing tenants in it versus the $200 I might get for a tourist, of course I'm going to take social housing tenants. We know for a fact that they are horrific places for young New Zealanders to grow up. They are epicentres of crime and violence. I think that's terrible spending.
0: I'd love to see where these people would live if we just kicked them out.
1: I'd like to see the government investing a billion dollars in wider housing infrastructure so that we don't have such reliance on transitional housing infrastructure, Byron.
0: I hear your point, and I totally agree with that. We should build more houses, and I think we should resurrect KiwiBuild. It worked a treat last time. And let's just spend a billion dollars to build some houses.
1: You're trying to be funny. I don't Because it doesn't work
0: like it just doesn't work like that. You just don't spend a billion dollars in a budget and magic up houses. It just can't happen. And so these people were almost about to be forced out of their homes.
1: Not of their homes, of of private businesses. Of
0: safer housing than from whence they came. Because I'd love to be able to find permanent, warm, dry, secure housing for these people. But right now, there was a ledge coming. And the government made a hard decision. It's a billion dollars.
1: And that ledge also has a whole bunch of tourists who won't be able to come here because there will not be places for them to stay. And a lot of New Zealand's tourist hubs look at, for example, Rotorua. And we know those tourists have flow down effects into the wider economy and they spend a lot of money here. We need to come up with solutions faster. And you, you talk about, I absolutely agree, There's, there aren't places for these people to go. But where did we see the budget point towards enabling more private development? It was hugely lacking in the housing space. Which is New Zealand's largest concern right now?
0: I think on this one, we should agree to disagree. Mm. Maddie, talk me through. What's the next point?
1: Look, my pit, to be honest, was the eye-watering $327 million to be spent over four years on the RNZ, TVNZ merger. That amount is over a third of what they spent on the stimulus package for a merger.
0: I thought mergers were supposed to create efficiencies and like well, be cheaper. $327 million over three years. That's insanity.
1: It's a huge amount of money. There's another $127 million going towards the RMA reform package. Oh,
0: haven't they done that yet? No,
1: it's just an example of some of the thoughtless spending that New Zealanders don't care about. And they're not work programs that matter. When inflation is this high, when unemployment is unfortunately this low, this is spending that New Zealanders don't care about. Has anyone ever actually explained why this merger is ongoing? Do Kiwis actually care? I'd say the answer is...
0: Probably not. The Minister has not done a good job of explaining the benefits of this merger to New Zealanders. Mm. What we've been told is that they're going to go ahead and do it, Mm. and that it's just an assumed, objectively good thing.
1: To me, it's one of the many areas of wasteful spending in this budget, and that's why it's my pit. In the conversations that we've had about it, it looks like a budget that was written last December about the things that Kiwis cared most about at that point. And a lot's changed since the time that these were made in the budget cycle, and for me, the cost of living package, tack it on. I could see how this was between Monday and Thursday, a climate and health response, but there was just some policy in there that made absolutely no sense. It's what we're calling whack-a-mole policy making. You see something pop up and you just like smack it just to see what happens. And I'd be interested to see the regulatory impact statements of a lot of these policies because I'm worried about that overcooking economy and the role of the stimulus and there's just so much additional spending in here that's going to flow through our economy.
0: If you were doing a manu off a wharf uh, and uh, landing in the water, uh, you're, you're splashed wouldn't be that big and your back would kind of be a bit sore because you probably slapped it a wee bit on the water that's the way i describe this budget
1: nice yeah that's a goodie that's a good that i'm probably not going to use that myself <laughs> thank the good listeners you out used to there the old manu. Like a little in the water mm, nice you've been you've actually waited 23 episodes for a segue to make that sound into the microphone and i i appreciate it you
0: know what i appreciate cruising <laughs> <laughs> i think we should hear from the future of the tourism industry So we're joined by Marguerite Fitzgerald, the brand spanking new president of Carnival Australia, which is the region's largest cruise operator. And full disclosure, they are a wonderful, loyal client of Iron Duke Partners and have been for some time. So welcome, Marguerite, and welcome to New Zealand.
2: Thank you, Byron. Thank you, Maddie. Great to be here.
0: So I think uh, we should kick off with a little description about Carnival and a little description about what life was like pre-pandemic so people get a bit of an idea about the cruise industry, about Carnival and also a little bit about yourself.
2: Carnival is the world's largest cruise operator and as you said, we are also the only cruise line that has operations based in this region. So we have our head office for P&O Cruises and Carnival Australia based in Sydney. Pre-pandemic, it was a fantastic industry. It was a growth industry all around the world. People were discovering what cruise was. In fact, Australians, pre-COVID, were the highest per capita cruisers in the world. Brilliant. Which I always think makes complete sense when you think of countries like Australia and New Zealand that are island nations. It's more than just like where you can go and, you know, what you can see. It's actually that experience mm. of what, you know, we're calling the renaissance of s- slow travel. Yeah. Right up there with slow food. The hardest decision you will make every day is where to eat for breakfast mm. and what to have for dinner. I can see a lot of people working from home from cruise ships in this, uh, in this next normal. We have talked
1: about that. That's yeah, I- awesome. <laughs> Hopefully Phil O'Reilly listens to this podcast.
0: Exactly. Hopefully Mr O'Reilly hears that. So thinking about the last couple of years, the cruise industry has been in a stasis. The ships have been all in weird, wonderful places around the world waiting to restart. So what has been going on in the last two years? What's the pandemic looked like for Carnival Australia?
2: The first few months was actually shock, right? It really, I don't think anybody quite understood that you could stop an industry. What doesn't get spoken about, and we are really, really proud of as a company, is that we repatriated about 600,000 passengers and nearly 200,000 crew. You know, there's some really fantastic stories about cruise ships meeting up in the middle of middle of the sea, you know, transferring crew Walking between the them. plank. <laughs> well, yeah, not quite that dramatic, but literally Kindering, yeah. And then the ships would go off to various parts of the world and, and drop people. It was like it was the local bus service. Like, they Which yeah. island? Who's at this stop? Wow. That was the first part of our pandemic. That's an
1: amazing story, actually. It's exciting to hear about, you know, the return of cruising and awesome to see that you've got such a strong presence here. What are some of the other challenges when we look through COVID that your
2: industry is continuing to face? Environmental impact. How do we think through sustainable tourism? Those are conversations that are definitely continuing as we think about restart. Like many good businesses, we use the COVID period to actually take a breath, which is very hard to do in operations because we are an operation that runs 24 hours a day 365 days a year so we don't have those natural stops in how we operate some of the things that we were already doing around how do we decrease our emissions we've really doubled down on
0: for those that don't know describe some of that including something that's quite interesting that goes on under the hull
2: there's ones that are big ones that are quite visible so when you think about a cruise ship and you think about you know the stack at the top where the emissions get released well we actually have things that are called scrubbers. That's the layman's term. The technical term is advanced air quality systems. And they actually clean the emissions. So what you see coming out of a cruise ship is really just steam. And a lot of what the emission is is actually things like sulphur. Did you know sulphur is the third most common element in seawater? So we can actually put that back into the sea, which is... Completely disappears, but That's we don't cool. want it in the air. Is that we what don't I'm want it in here? the air? And
0: well, if you've been to Rotorua, you know why.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, true, true. 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 That is stuff. that is true. We have this new technology where we actually put basically what we would describe as bubbles under the hull of the ship as it's being propelled forward. It actually lifts up and reduces the drag on the ship, which means that we use less fuel, like foils. Exactly. You're the
0: second person to say yeah, that. Really, yeah, like
2: actually. a giant foil as a cruise ship. That's awesome. Yes. It is fantastic, and it doesn't change the smoothness of the ride either.
0: And that's been something that I know small communities are worried about, emissions that you can see visibly, it's also what might be the effect on the seabed, and it's also a bit of concern around over-tourism that's been in the past.
2: Yeah, I mean, people sort of talk through, you know, what it's like to have, and they say, oh, you know, having 2,000 passengers, 3,000, 4,000 passengers, even pre-COVID, as you said, there were communities that were talking through that. I think one of the things that COVID has really done is it's made people think about, well, what was the problem. And for yeah. many people, it was not having the tourists there. In fact, tourists were so important to their economies. It wasn't just the person who was say, you know, operating the jet ski or, yeah. you know, providing like sitting at their little restaurant. It is the full community around that, whether it's the accountants, the school teachers, all of those, you know, were directly impacted. So that is actually a sentiment that many communities are taking forward, but saying, hey, we want to be able to shape the way tourism looks post COVID. And that has been something that really is very aligned to the values of Carnival because we believe in working with our communities, the communities we visit, to make sure that it's mutually beneficial, us coming there.
1: Can we talk a little bit about that economic impact because that's something about working with you guys that I really like, that, that blows my mind just in terms of how much of our product and our produce you're buying and that's before your passengers open their wallets in, in our port cities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Well, overall pre-COVID it was estimated that the cruise industry bought about half a billion dollars worth of economic activity in New Zealand and actually we're looking at about the same in 2023. Once we ramp back up we'll be able to get back up to our previous levels. Inside that as well you know we just think about you know directly the produce that we buy to put on our ships. We estimate just you know five million dollars worth of food and wine clearly and I think what really makes crews distinctive we're able to get to more harder to get to places yeah. because we have a ship that is able to go via the coast mm. and so we're able to bring that economic activity into little towns cl- like, little like
1: Akaroa that's that's the big one in New Zealand that without you guys they're they're virtually just a village on the coast of nowhere
2: And our guests love Akaroa.
1: What's the big pitch for cruising? If I'm someone who's got money to spend and I I want to get away on holiday, why would I be taking a carnival
2: cruise? Well, I would say, I would first ask you questions. Who are you travelling with? My colleague and podcast extraordinaire, (laughs) Mr. Byron Terrace. Well, if that's the case, then it's an easy answer. (laughs) We'd suggest that you go on a cruise that is really targeted to more like friends and groups. I'd suggest P&O cruises personally. Great entertainment fantastic comedy some of the best comedians you'll see our guests come on a cruise because they get to be their best selves Mm. basically it doesn't matter what you do in your day job it doesn't matter you know if you come from you know big city small town if you have lots of money or you've saved for two years to take this cruise on a cruise ship everybody's treated the same which is really really well and everybody walks off with a huge smile on their face
0: brilliant so may 31st first cruise from australia in australia may 31st may 31st 31st is our first cruise And New Zealand uh, lifted the maritime border order on July 31st, which kind of reconnects that market. How did you feel when when you heard about that news, you could start reopening to this part of the world?
2: Really excited. Right up there with the same excitement we felt when the ban was lifted in Australia because we know that so many cruisers love coming to New Zealand. You know, About 70% of the cruisers in New Zealand are actually Australian, And Australians are, you know, like Kiwis, people who like to travel and explore. And so I knew that when the border was going to be opening, that we'd have Australian cruisers who just couldn't wait finally had somewhere that they could travel on a cruise ship. I have this, uh, this this couple I met up in Queensland who pre-COVID had done 62 cruises in five years. Get out. Wow. And they will be on our first cruise back and they love it. That is how they spend their retirement.
0: Wow. Uh, and that's, that's, I meant 62 cruises across all different brands?
2: Uh, mostly P&O actually, oh, okay. but they actually had to travel to the US because that was the only way that they could cruise during COVID. So they oh, went and did seven yes. back-to-back cruises. Back-to-back. Back-to-back cruises. Oh, amazing. Sounds addictive.
1: It's awesome that New Zealand benefits from that economic stimulus. What about our Pacific neighbours who are feeling it much harder than we are in terms of that tourism deficit?
2: We're already starting conversations and it's been really tough. You know, they had economies that were really dependent on tourism, but at the same time, they also had to protect themselves from COVID in a world where they don't have the same resources that are available to Australia or New Zealand. As they're, you know, starting to work through opening up, they are very excited and we are already talking to them and helping them think through what are the protocols and what does a restart look like. One of the things that I was really impressed by when I started at Carnival was we are actually the largest employer of Ni Vanuatu. They come onto our P&O cruise ships, and then actually we train them up and they go back. We also help develop those economies and, and develop the learning and development.
0: As is tradition on the Iron podcast, at the end of every interview, we finish with a very quick fire, hot or not. Quite simply, we say something that's topical, and if you like it, it's hot. If you don't, it's not. The first one for me, hot or not, pre-departure tests. Not.
1: It's one of my ones. This is why you shouldn't get to go first.
0: <laughs> Early morning business time flights. Mm, Not. New Zealand Seven Year block.
2: Hot.
1: Well, I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. I'm curious about. Then, where do you think the best port to go to in New Zealand is?
2: Milford Sound.
1: What do you think the best thing to eat from New Zealand on board a, a p o or a Princess cruise would be?
0: Pocacowi
2: onions. <laughs> <laughs> what he said.
1: And lastly, where are you most excited to get back to on a cruise ship?
2: I'm just excited to get back on a cruise ship with guests. Yeah,
1: brilliant. Absolutely.
2: Brilliant.
0: Marguerite, thank you so much for your time. I really hope you enjoy the time you have in New
2: Zealand and we can't wait to see a cruise ship back in our harbours. You're welcome.